As we covered previously, Richard Nixon entered office during one of the most tumultuous times in American history. And he had a bold agenda to remake his country's foreign policy. A new form of realism would dictate America's Cold War strategy. The first test of this new worldview would occur in the jungles of Vietnam. That story is the subject of this episode of This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. The biggest issue for Nixon upon entering office was what to do about the Vietnam War. And this is where I'd like to give some context. There are many today who view the Vietnam War as an unmitigated disaster, and there's good reason for this. It was a costly endeavor that ended with a communist victory over the United States and its ally, South Vietnam. And there is a long list of unsavory actions over several administrations that got America stuck there. But it's important to remember that this is very easy to say in hindsight. There were many well-meaning and intelligent Americans who believed that getting involved in Vietnam was the right thing to do. Heck, there are still people who feel that way today and believe that the United States should have been more willing to do what it took to win. For them, supporting the anti-communist side in the war was the morally right thing to do. Their issue is with how the war was fought. With that said, I think it's fair to ask ourselves, why did America get involved in the first place? In our previous episodes, we covered aspects of that story. Much of Southeast Asia had been colonized by the French. In 1954, a Vietnamese independence movement kicked the French out. But the northern part of Vietnam ended up being led by the communist Ho Chi Minh, while the southern part was led by a pro-Western government under No Dinh Diem. Both North and South were soon at odds the South finding itself fighting against a communist insurgency. At the time, Dwight D. Eisenhower was the American president, and he was a foremost proponent of the domino theory, the belief that if one country fell to communism, then communism would spread to its neighbors. When I was in school, I heard a lot of people mock this idea, but there's a reason why people believed it then. First, almost everyone involved in policymaking at the time saw what happened in the run-up to World War II. Before World War II, the United States had turned inward, preferring to distance itself from the world after participating in World War I. Meanwhile, the fascist powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan emerged and began aggressively expanding. Within the United States, debate raged about what this all meant for the American people. Many felt that there was no sense in getting involved again in global conflict. Meanwhile, Britain in the 1930s embarked on a policy of appeasement, trying to negotiate with Hitler, granting him territory with the hope that he would cease his aggressive actions. Many Americans, including John F. Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, who was the ambassador to Great Britain, supported this policy. It was an egregious mistake. Hitler became only more emboldened by Western action, invading Poland, France, and more and more of Europe. 
But when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the American people realized that they could no longer ignore what was happening in the world. It was a brutal war, and although they didn't bear the brunt of the war, many Americans began to realize that it was in their interest to engage with the world. They began to rethink how the world handled Hitler in the 1930s. Instead of confronting Hitler earlier, they gave in to his demands, which allowed him to strengthen, and they had to confront him later when he was at full strength. They thought of the countless lives that could have been spared, the atrocities and the brutal combat that could have been avoided, if they and the rest of the world had acted sooner. The experience in World War II ingrained in American policymakers the belief that appeasing or ignoring an aggressor would only embolden him. Whatever one thinks of this belief, the idea that tyrants and aggressors cannot be appeased, it's quite reasonable to understand why people believe that after seeing what happened with Hitler. Later, during the Cold War, Whenever a confrontation happened between the Western world and the communist world, there was a fear, just like against Hitler, that if the West didn't do something about it then, it would have to deal with it from a far weaker position later, perhaps at the cost of more lives. During the Cold War, the United States saw the Soviets move into Eastern Europe, installing communist regimes, and then acquiring the atomic bomb. They saw China fall to communism, a fifth of the world's population. They saw the communist threat spread to Korea, Southeast Asia, and even Cuba, just 90 miles away from American shores. They saw the Soviets become the first to launch a satellite into space. So when South Vietnam was being threatened by communists, either from within or from North Vietnam, when they saw any sign of support from China or the Soviet Union for North Vietnam, they again saw an aggressor who wouldn't be stopped unless America stopped it an aggressor that had to be stopped now before they gained any more power. Although Eisenhower didn't send in ground troops in the 1950s to address the communist threat in Vietnam, he did provide American support in other ways. Eventually, Kennedy would send in tens of thousands of military advisors to train and assist the South Vietnamese. And of course, Lyndon Johnson would Americanize the war, sending hundreds of thousands of ground troops by the 1968 election, the question was what to do about the war. The nation was torn. Young people across the country, many who were in danger of being drafted, were protesting against the war. Many were calling for an immediate withdrawal. Others who were strong anti-communists felt Johnson wasn't really fighting to win and hoped that America would unleash the full weight of its arsenal to crush the North Vietnamese. Still others hoped for some sort of favorable outcome without a real idea of what that meant. Nixon spoke to that hope with his vague promise of peace with honor. Many people have criticized Nixon for not ending the war immediately. They look back at the result of the war and say, well, if America didn't win in the end, shouldn't it have just cut its losses? Shouldn't it have just pulled out of the war at some point to reduce the number of casualties? There's some fairness to this argument, but again, it's easy to say that in hindsight. The one thing I think people who say that fail to account for is that American policymakers knew that as the leader of the free world, America had global responsibilities. Taiwan, Japan, the countries of Western Europe, and many more, all of them depended on the United States against the communist threat. Policymakers feared that a fast withdrawal from Vietnam would have been perceived as an abandonment of an ally, leaving 17 million South Vietnamese to fend for themselves against the communists. They worried that this would have implications all over the world. America would not be seen as a trustworthy ally. Today we know the result of the war, that America would lose and South Vietnam would fall to the communists. After America did pull out, it didn't appear on the surface that its withdrawal ruined its alliances and credibility. But I think at the time, this was a reasonable concern. It seemed that Nixon had few options in Vietnam. He could have redoubled America's efforts, perhaps escalating the intensity of the military effort in an attempt to win the war or get better concessions at the negotiating table. Or he could just cut and run, bring the troops home, and declare victory. But you also have to remember that America was decades into this commitment. There was a sense that 
America had sacrificed so many lives already, it had to get some agreement beyond just a total withdrawal and defeat. As Kissinger would later write, he wanted to, quote, end the war in a matter that gave some meaning to the sacrifices that had been made. As an exercise of our own will, rather than through the exhaustion of endless discord. It wasn't clear what the American people wanted either. A poll in March of 1969 showed that 19% of Americans wanted the war to end as soon as possible. Another 19% wanted the war to continue as it was going. And 33% wanted total military victory. So basically, Americans were divided on what they wanted, ranging from immediate withdrawal to renewed push to win the war. And if you combine some of those numbers, 52% wanted to either continue the then-current policy of the war or total military victory. Only a fifth, or about 19%, wanted the war to end then and there. If anything, those who wanted the war to end immediately were heavily outnumbered. The Nixon administration had few easy options. It wanted to find a way to end the war without losing it. There was a real desire to end it somehow. The war was costly in terms of lives and government spending. And it was costly for Lyndon Johnson, who saw his presidency crumble because of the war. Nixon feared that his presidency would be next. According to his aide, H.R. Haldeman, Nixon said, quote, I'm not going to end up like LBJ, holed up in the White House, afraid to show my face on the street. I'm going to stop that war fast. Before the election, Henry Kissinger had promised Michigan Congressman Donald Regal, quote, if we're elected, we'll end this war in six months. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. The question was what to do to achieve, quote, peace with honor. The answer the administration came up with was what was called Vietnamization. Essentially, it meant de-Americanizing the war. It meant having less American forces actually fighting the war on the ground and letting the South Vietnamese to take more of the effort. The Americans, instead, would focus more on economic and military aid and training so the Vietnamese could stand up on their own feet. The truth was that Vietnamization wasn't a totally new idea. In our previous episodes on President John F. Kennedy, we saw how, before America had committed ground troops in Vietnam on a massive scale, JFK had tried to focus primarily on building up South Vietnam's fighting capability. After LBJ escalated the war, in the waning months of his administration, he had stopped the bombing, focusing on diplomacy and also on building up South Vietnam's military. The new policy of Vietnamization, although not new, made sense. The same poll I mentioned above revealed that 26% of respondents wanted South Vietnam to take over responsibility for the war from the United States. Nixon, essentially, was attempting to withdraw American forces without losing the war and without losing credibility. And as it withdrew, it had to enable South Vietnam to better defend itself. Meanwhile, Nixon would continue negotiations with North Vietnam that had begun under Johnson to try to come to an agreement. But the North Vietnamese government in Hanoi knew that America was in a tight spot, and they sought to exploit it. They knew the American people were tiring of the war. And if they could get them totally fed up with the war, it could get what it wanted, full communist control over a united Vietnam. During the talks, North Vietnam demanded that the United States leave South Vietnam completely. As soon as America left, Hanoi could then finish what it had started, the subjugation of the South and a reunification of the entire country under communism. North Vietnam had infiltrated the South for years, 
and was not planning to change course after all the effort they had put into the war. And South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu wasn't happy either about the prospect of de-Americanizing the war. If his country wasn't winning the war with American support, it stood little chance of winning without it. So he was reluctant to endorse any agreement that the Americans might forge with the North. The North Vietnamese government in Hanoi pressed its advantage as Nixon took office, intensifying its guerrilla effort with the goal of inflicting as many casualties against the Americans as possible. This led to the deaths of 40 American soldiers per day early in Nixon's administration. So Nixon responded with what would be his main tactic in Vietnam over the next few years, bombings, hitting targets in both North Vietnam and in neighboring Laos. Johnson was already bombing Laos because there were communist forces in that country, they had been there for years, and the North Vietnamese had used Laos to move supplies, also known as the famous Ho Chi Minh Trail. But the trail went through Cambodia as well. So Nixon began bombing Cambodia. He got permission from Cambodia's leader, Prince Sihanouk, to bomb communist targets. He knew that this would be a controversial decision that would inflame many Americans at home, so he did so secretly, even without the knowledge of many high-ranking leaders in the Pentagon. Even Secretary of State Rogers and Secretary of Defense Laird opposed the bombing in Cambodia. Historian Melvin Small recounts that Nixon had flight plans and navigation systems altered to hide the Cambodian bombings. Operation Menu, which began in March 1969, dropped over 100,000 tons of bombs in Cambodia. According to estimates, the attacks killed a few thousand civilians. Two months later, in May 1969, the New York Times reported about the bombings. The information was leaked from an unnamed source in the administration. Anti-war activists were outraged. They accused Nixon of, quote, widening down the war, that he was telling the American people he was trying to end the war, but in reality he was expanding or widening it in other ways. Nixon was infuriated by the leak and ordered that the FBI investigate how it happened. He suspected that National Security Council staffer Morton Halperin was behind it, and he had the FBI wiretap him. If bombing Cambodia was not enough, there were also darker things going on in the Nixon administration. It continued what was called the Phoenix Program. It was a top-secret program between the CIA, the Army, and Special Operations, which involved assassinations, targeted killings, kidnapping, torture, counterterrorism, and other tactics against the Viet Cong communist insurgents. For many, it was unsavory. But it had its origins in previous administrations, and it was a continuation of decades of CIA activities. For many American anti-communists, these clandestine programs were necessary to defeat the evil represented by communism. But even with these covert actions and these bombings, Nixon signaled he wanted peace, or at least to wrap up the war. He began initiating large amounts of troop withdrawals from Vietnam. This was the key element to his Vietnamization policy. He ordered 25,000 troops to come home in the first wave of withdrawals in the middle of 1969, and more were to come. He would go on to announce the departure of another 35,000 troops in September and 50,000 more in December. He also called the North Vietnamese to reciprocate with their own withdrawals and to guarantee free elections in the South. In July of 1969, Nixon also wrote personally to North Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh, warning him that if he didn't agree to a deal by November 1st, his country would face, quote, measures of great consequences and force. Nixon also turned to secret peace negotiations, since the formal ones were going nowhere, and also because of his penchant for secrecy. Starting in August of 1969, Kissinger had covert meetings with North Vietnamese official Lu Duc Tho. Nixon was applying the carrot-and-the-stick approach in the hopes of pressuring the government in Hanoi. Although the bombing of Cambodia set off a firestorm in the United States, most Americans found Nixon's Vietnamization policy pretty reasonable. 68% of Americans supported it in a poll in October of 1969. Nixon knew that this was the time to capitalize on public opinion. He needed it desperately if he wanted leverage on the negotiating table. 
As I said earlier, Nixon often had a troubled public image, even going back to his years in Congress. He was seen by many as unlikable or untrustworthy. But somehow he also had a sense of what the American people were thinking. Nixon knew that the anti-war protesters, many of whom wanted an immediate withdrawal, were making headlines, but he knew that much of the rest of America had different perspectives. He knew that some of those Americans were being alienated by the people making the loudest noise. He believed that while the protesters were accusing the United States of atrocities in Vietnam and questioning the moral authority of their country, most Americans still remained patriotic. A lot of these Americans were sick and tired of the riots in the streets and the racial divisions. Nixon wanted to talk to those people. They were the ones who rejected the direction the country was going under Democratic leadership and had voted him into office in 1968. They were, as he called them, the silent majority of Americans. Some believe that Nixon was appealing to a group of Americans unhappy with the changes going on in America, whether those changes were in the area of racial relations or social and gender roles. Some have accused Nixon of stoking those divisions during the 1968 campaign and appealing to their prejudices and resentments throughout his presidency. Historians still debate the extent to which this is true. Regardless, on November 3, 1969, Nixon spoke to those people, asking for their support for his Vietnam War policy. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to talk to you on a subject of deep concern to all Americans and to many people in all parts of the world, the war in Vietnam. In the lines that follow, Nixon portrayed himself as the statesman trying to do the right thing, rather than the politically expedient thing. The war was causing deep division at home and criticism from many of our friends as well as our enemies abroad. In view of these circumstances, there were some who urged that I end the war at once by ordering the immediate withdrawal of all American forces. From a political standpoint, this would have been a popular an easy course to follow. After all, we became involved in the war while my predecessor was in office. I could blame the defeat, which would be the result of my action, on him and come out as the peacemaker. Some put it to me quite bluntly. This was the only way to avoid allowing Johnson's war to become Nixon's war. But I had a greater obligation than to think only of the years of my administration and of the next election. I had to think of the effect of my decision on the next generation and on the future of peace and freedom in America and in the world. Nixon then explained what many Americans were thinking. Some on the far left believed that America was the aggressor in the war, that it was morally in the wrong, or at least no better than the communists. Some of them even felt that America was an inherently evil nation, not just because of the situation in Vietnam. To them, the United States was an imperialist nation, while the North Vietnamese communists were the heroes. But many Americans rejected this. They remained patriotic, and believed the United States remained a force for good. Nixon spoke to this feeling when he put the blame for the diplomatic impasse and the ongoing conflict on the North Vietnamese. But the effect of all the public, private, and secret negotiations which have been undertaken since the bombing halt a year ago, and since this administration came into office on January uh, January 20th, can be summed up in one sentence. No progress whatever has been made except agreement on the shape of the bargaining table. Well, now who is at fault? It's become clear that the obstacle in negotiating an end of the war is not the President of the United States. It is not the South Vietnamese government. The obstacle is the other side's absolute refusal to show the least willingness to join us in seeking a just peace. And it will not do so while it is convinced that all it has to do is to wait for our next concession and our next concession after that one until it gets everything it wants. There can now be no longer any question that progress in negotiation depends only 
on Hanoi's deciding to negotiate, to negotiate seriously. Nixon then discussed his solution, Vietnamization. The Vietnamization plan was launched following Secretary Laird's visit to Vietnam in March. Under the plan, I ordered first a substantial increase in the training and equipment of South Vietnamese forces. In July, on my visit to Vietnam, I changed General Abrams' orders so that they were consistent with the objectives of our new policy. Under the new orders, the primary mission of our troops is to enable the South Vietnamese forces to assume the full responsibility for the security of South Vietnam. Nixon then ended his speech with his famous appeal. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Nixon reached out to what he'd hoped to be his base of support, not the people who were making the noise, but, as he called it, the great silent majority who he believed felt marginalized by a smaller group of louder voices. It was a brilliant political move. A Gallup poll released soon after the speech showed that 77% of Americans supported Nixon's Vietnam policy. During the speech, Nixon explained what would be called the Nixon Doctrine. It was the overarching principle behind Vietnamization. He affirmed that America would maintain its treaty commitments but with some caveats. He said, quote, We shall look to the nation directly threatened to assume the primary responsibility of providing the manpower for its defense. It was a way for America to ensure it remained a credible and trustworthy ally while wisely managing its commitments without becoming overextended. By the end of 1969, the military situation in Vietnam seemed to be improving. American casualties were decreasing dramatically, and the U.S. military was reducing its combat role. And in March 1970, a coup took place in Cambodia. Prince Sihanouk was toppled. In his place was a new prime minister, Lon Nol. Nol was far friendlier to the United States and allied with Washington against the North Vietnamese and the communists in Cambodia, known as the Khmer Rouge. The U.S. began providing Lon Nol with billions of dollars worth of aid to fight the 40,000 North Vietnamese in Cambodia. The following month, Nixon announced that 150,000 troops were coming home, the biggest reduction in U.S. forces so far. Things were looking up. Vietnamization seemed to be succeeding. But then, as usually happens, things got more complicated. The secret talks between Kissinger and Lu Duc Tho broke down. 
Regardless of Nixon's efforts, Hanoi was still confident it could have ultimate victory. Soon, the North Vietnamese launched an offensive against Cambodia. This was a direct challenge to the United States. Nixon may have been trying to get a deal with the North Vietnamese, but he could not look like he would accept an outright defeat. Very soon after that communist offensive, on April 30, 1970, he announced a momentous decision. He would order the military to invade Cambodia to protect it from the North Vietnamese. He sent in about 50,000 troops. Nixon believed he could not let communist aggression stand in Cambodia. With this news, protests erupted all across the nation, especially on college campuses. But the opposition didn't stop there. It included members of Nixon's own administration. Several members of the National Security Council resigned in protest. The Senate attempted to cut off funds for the invasion, but that effort failed. Still, the protests were fierce, and they broke out all across the country. And this is where you see the infamous shootings at Kent State and Jackson State, where members of the National Guard shot and killed a handful of students who were protesting. The invasion of Cambodia only lasted a few months. Nixon announced that he would remove the troops there by June 30th. When he did, Nixon declared that the incursion had been a success. Polls showed that a majority of Americans had supported the incursion into Cambodia, and that many Americans were not sympathetic to the protesters. These protesters didn't do themselves any favors when they bombed a military research center at the University of Wisconsin. At any rate, most historians consider the outcome of Nixon's actions in Cambodia to have been inconclusive. And as we'll see, future events in Cambodia would continue to spiral out of control. Some historians, fairly or unfairly, would later claim that Nixon's invasion contributed to the country's further destabilization. By contrast, Henry Kissinger defends the Cambodian incursion to this day. He later wrote, quote, People usually refer to the bombing of Cambodia as if it had been an unprovoked secretive U.S. action. The fact is that we were bombing North Vietnamese troops that had invaded Cambodia that were killing many Americans from these sanctuaries, and we were doing it with the acquiescence of the Cambodian government, which never once protested against it, and which, indeed, encouraged us to do it. I may have lack of imagination, but I fail to see the moral issue. By this time, the North Vietnamese knew they had a built-in advantage. Although Nixon had expanded the war in some ways, he was still withdrawing a lot of ground forces from Vietnam. Hanoi now felt that they could just wait things out, even if it meant enduring a bombing campaign here or there. They had little incentive to make an agreement with the United States. This is where you can see just how boxed in the Nixon administration was. The American people didn't want outright surrender, but they wanted the fighting to be over. And as I alluded to earlier, the American people were too divided to give their leaders any clear mandate of action. A lot of Americans just hoped that Nixon would somehow solve it, not even knowing what solving it would look like. I suppose Nixon could have totally ended the war at any point, bombings and all. But again, he had a reasonable concern for American credibility. His administration wanted the best deal possible, something to show that America wouldn't abandon an ally, that maybe that ally could have the ability to stand up on its own. But the more the administration continued the war effort, the more opposition it encountered at home. Vietnamization was designed to split the difference, to get an honorable outcome for the United States while reducing its burden. All the while, the North Vietnamese pressed on with their goal of communist takeover. In the fall of 1970, the North Vietnamese began planning for a major offensive for 1972, when they estimated the U.S. might be out of Southeast Asia. Congress again pushed for the end of the war. A bipartisan resolution by Democratic Senator George McGovern of South Dakota, who would run against Nixon in 1972, and Republican Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon, called for a return of all U.S. troops by the end of 1971. Meanwhile, Nixon continued ordering withdrawals. In October, he brought back another 40,000 men. And then in April of 1971, 
he withdrew another 100,000, another massive reduction. But that year, 1971, things got worse for the American effort. This is the year that saw the trial of those involved in the My Lai Massacre back in 1968, when several U.S. soldiers raped and killed hundreds of Vietnamese civilians, including women, children, and infants. Although two dozen soldiers were charged with crimes, only one man, William Kelly, was convicted. The news further soured public opinion of the war and allowed anti-war activists to portray the American effort as immoral. That same year, the New York Times began publishing what would become known as the Pentagon Papers, a secret Department of Defense study on the history of the Vietnam War that revealed a great deal of dishonesty in the U.S. government's conduct going all the way back to 1945, encompassing both Democratic and Republican administrations. The anti-war protests continued. Vietnam veterans were now demonstrating against the war, including a young John Kerry who would go on to have a prominent political career of his own. Knowing that he had little leverage and under a great deal of pressure, Nixon made a key concession. In May of 1971, he signaled to the North Vietnamese that he would drop his demand that they withdraw from the South. It showed just how little leverage the United States had on the negotiating table. Still, throughout 1971, Nixon's approval rating was steady, hovering around 50%, according to Gallup. The great silent majority still seemed to believe that Nixon was doing the best he could in tough circumstances, perhaps better than anyone else could. Less forces in Vietnam meant less bodies were coming home in bags or coffins, and America still had some hope that the South Vietnamese could sustain the effort alone. That hope that America could extricate itself from the war but not lose it, led many to believe that the lives that had been lost had not been lost in vain. All of this translated in a steady approval rating for Nixon. In November of 1971, the president removed another 45,000 troops. By the end of the year, Nixon removed the vast majority of U.S. forces that had been there going back to 1969. In that year, there had been a half a million American troops in Vietnam. By the end of 1979, there were 156,000. The stage was set for 1972, the key year in the Vietnam conflict. It was also an election year for Richard Nixon. He knew that whether he would be re-elected hinged in large part on finding some satisfactory solution in Vietnam he still seemed to have faith that his strategy would lead to some favorable diplomatic outcome. He continued to withdraw forces. In January, he announced the removal of 70,000 troops. This meant that by May of 1972, only 69,000 American forces would be in Vietnam. And on January 25th, he made a bombshell announcement. He finally publicly disclosed that Kissinger had been in secret talks with the North Vietnamese ever since 1969, mainly with Lu Duc Tho in Paris. Nixon then announced, if an agreement was forged, the U.S. would remove all troops from pretty much all of Southeast Asia within six months. He called for the South Vietnamese to be permitted to have an election. He even said that the Viet Cong, the communist insurgency in South Vietnam, could participate in that election. This was a major concession by Nixon. Unfortunately, Nixon's hopeful announcement did nothing to sway the North Vietnamese, who rejected the proposal. They were relentless in their pursuit of a unified Vietnam. Instead of a peace deal, they were planning a massive military operation called the Easter Offensive. It involved hundreds of thousands of troops in 14 divisions and hundreds of tanks and other weapons supplied by the Soviet Union, and it began on March of 1972. Nixon was infuriated by the offensive. He said that the North Vietnamese, quote, has gone over the brink, and so have we. Since most American troops had been withdrawn, Nixon turned to America's bombing capability and decided to unleash it to a level beyond anything before. He said, quote, We have the power to destroy Vietnam's war-making capacity. The only question is whether we have the will to use that power. 
He then referred to his predecessor, Lennon Johnson, saying, quote, What distinguishes me from Johnson is that I have that will in spades. And he would demonstrate that will decisively. He initiated Operation Linebacker, sending 124 additional B-52 bombers to Vietnam, bringing the total number of bombers to 210. In April of 1972, Nixon had a private call with Kissinger, where he expressed his feelings of vengeance towards Hanoi. Well, you know, all this is all, frankly, uh, it's moot. We don't care who knocked out which. The question is who wins now. And at this point, we are going to kick the shit out of them. We're going to win this, whatever the cost. Then in May, Nixon ordered the military to drop mines in the Hanoi and Haiphong harbors. Although it was a controversial move, 60% of the American people were behind him, seeing it as a justified response to the North Vietnamese Easter Offensive. After this announcement, Nixon spoke with his attorney general, John Mitchell, and said he wasn't finished and that he was willing to destroy the North Vietnamese capital. The main effect, you know, as you know, uh, uh, this kind of operation, it's not, it's not technically a blockade, but that's what it is. It only has an effect over a period of time, but I can tell you that if it doesn't work psychologically, I'll keep the goddamn thing on and lose the election if necessary, but boy, right after the election, we'll, we'll just level Hanoi. I mean level it. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. By the fall of 1972, with the presidential election approaching in America, the North Vietnamese began to let up. It became clear that the Easter Offensive had been costly, and North Vietnam had gained territory, but it had suffered an astounding 100,000 casualties. Also, they had hoped that Nixon might lose re-election, but the polls showed that Nixon would probably win. Hanoi went back to the negotiating table. They even signaled they might be willing to let the current South Vietnamese president, Nguyen Van Thieu, remain in power. Kissinger and Liu continued their talks. Then came a breakthrough. Liu agreed in theory to allow Thieu to remain in power until elections could be arranged in South Vietnam. Multiple parties, including the communists, might be allowed to participate in that election. It seemed that the North Vietnamese were finally matching Nixon's concessions with concessions of their own. This all signaled that peace could soon be at hand. The world held its breath. The end of the Vietnam War was in sight. Although he was closer than ever to a breakthrough, and one that could ensure his re-election, Nixon knew that a major problem remained. He knew that South Vietnamese President Thieu wouldn't accept an agreement, and that if peace came, South Vietnam would be in danger of falling to the communists. In October of 1972, Kissinger informed Thieu of a potential deal. Predictably, Thieu rejected it and was outraged, believing that America was about to betray South Vietnam. Things then got even more complicated. North Vietnam, perhaps to prevent Thieu from sabotaging the agreement, went public with the details of a potential agreement on October 25th, hoping to garner support that would be insurmountable for Thieu to stop. Kissinger himself affirmed the agreement saying, quote, peace is at hand. He, too, hoped to generate enough momentum that would pressure the South Vietnamese to accept the agreement. At the same time, Nixon began having his own qualms. He hadn't approved the agreement just yet. 
He was upset that Kissinger had publicly endorsed the potential deal without his approval. He may have even suspected that Kissinger was trying to take credit away from him for the agreement. He reportedly said, quote, I suppose now everyone's going to say that Kissinger won the election. Nixon even got his aide, Chuck Colson, to track Kissinger's phone calls. Still, it seemed that peace was closer than ever before, and that helped Nixon in his re-election bid against George McGovern, the senator from South Dakota, who was largely identified with the anti-war left of the Democratic Party. On November 7, 1972, Nixon won re-election in a landslide of historic proportions, winning 49 out of 50 states. It was a huge endorsement by the American people of Nixon's Vietnam policies. Nixon, for all the ups and downs of the past four years, despite the protests and the intense opposition, had a mandate to continue his efforts in Vietnam, and the North Vietnamese knew it. A few weeks later, Kissinger and Liu met to hammer out the final draft of the deal. But the end game would be no less treacherous. The South Vietnamese had released their own version of the agreement, with many changes, which included international peacekeepers and a symbolic withdrawal of some North Vietnamese troops. In this phone call a week and a half after the election, Nixon and Kissinger complained that the South Vietnamese might sink the talks. What I wanted to uh, mention and, and check with you is we now we had a phone call from Bunker. We haven't had the actual message yet saying that now apparently the South Vietnamese are beginning to kick over the traces again. Oh, Christ. And I believe that we just have to continue now and get the best agreement we can. Yeah. And then face them with it afterwards. How are they kicking it over? Well, they've apparently submitted a memorandum to him. But he, he just said the news is not good, and their ambassador here has also raised some questions. It's their old pattern. What they always do is uh, they first read what you give them, then they raise a few technical objections, and then they just keep escalating it. But, well, shall I send them another letter? No, I think we now have to wait, Mr. President, until we get a. until we see at least what's going to happen in Paris. Mm-hmm. And once we have the text of an agreement in Paris, we'll. Uh, We'll have a new situation. So Bunker says that uh, they're kicking over the traces and just being unreasonable as hell. Is that it? That seems to be the case. But I don't... uh, We can't delay the negotiation, and we can't tell Hanoi that we're having trouble. No, sir. We're going to play it like an accordion. All right. When you really come down to it, though... I just can't see how Q's got any other choice. God damn it, uh, we've told him we're doing everything we can, and that's going to be it. Still, to satisfy Saigon, Kissinger ended up putting some of the conditions the South Vietnamese wanted in the text that he showed to the North Vietnamese. But the North Vietnamese did not take kindly to this. They believed that Kissinger was trying to fool them and sneak in these new conditions, so they tried to renegotiate the terms. Kissinger felt that North Vietnam was now stalling. The talks totally broke down. On December 12, 1972, Liu left the table. Kissinger was livid and referred to them using some four-letter words. Nixon now feared that everything was falling apart. This would be disastrous. Kissinger's announcement of peace had raised expectations for an end to the war. He had also feared that with the Democrats in charge of Congress, they would pass laws limiting his war powers. Nixon felt he had to force Hanoi back to the negotiating table. So he turned to what he felt had worked so well just months before, massive bombings. He also did so because he felt he had to show Thieu that he was willing to hit North Vietnam in the event that it violated an agreement. It was called Operation Linebacker 2. The U.S. again sent hundreds of B-52s over North Vietnam. It was the largest heavy bomber strikes by the United States since World War II. 36,000 tons of bombs. More were dropped on the North in 12 days than had been dropped from 1969 to 1971. It was costly for the United States. It lost 15 B-52s. But by the end of December, 
it got North Vietnam back to the table. Around this time, Nixon assured Thieu that whatever deal came out, he would hit North Vietnam again if it ever took any action against the South. On January 23, 1973, Kissinger and Liu signed an agreement. It went into effect four days later. It provided for a ceasefire enforced by an international commission. It stipulated that the United States would leave South Vietnam. North Vietnam would release all prisoners of war. Both sides agreed to send no more troops to South Vietnam. Elections would be held in the South, and the Viet Cong could participate. But there was one fatal flaw from the American perspective. 140,000 North Vietnamese troops were in the South, and they did not have to withdraw. Kissinger himself felt that the South Vietnamese wouldn't last a year and a half. As events would show, the North Vietnamese had no intention of honoring the agreement. But either way, it signaled that America's involvement in the war was finally ending. Still, Nixon touted the treaty as best he could. Nixon would go down in history as the president who ended America's involvement in what was then its longest war, a conflict that it had entered in the 1950s and remained involved in for two decades. It had been a difficult and costly path to peace. America had lost 58,000 men in that conflict. 18,000 of them came under Nixon. Whether or not he had achieved peace with honor is something that continues to be debated. Some have argued that Nixon could have gotten the same agreement with the Vietnamese earlier had he agreed to the talks without the bombings. Either way, America's nightmare in Southeast Asia was ending. Nixon had been re-elected by one of the greatest margins in history. As his second term began, he looked forward to creating a new world order according to his realist foreign policy views. How that turned out is the subject of the next episode of This American President. To learn more about Richard Nixon, check out The Presidency of Richard Nixon by Melvin Small, Nixon and Mao by Margaret McMillan, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to Jennifer Mazzella for her contributions in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.